You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. We are, I've only done this one other time, and that was to um, take time instead of having our regular worship service, spend time just teaching you. And today, that's what we're going to do. So it's going to be a different kind of service. Hopefully, you won't go to sleep. Now, let me say, Jeffrey and Megan had their baby. Uh, they had an eight-pound, six-ounce boy. And uh, he is a big old... He's a, I, I don't... I, I was telling, uh, telling some of them, he was 37 weeks. He was, he was 18 days early. I'd have hated to see him if he had went full term. But anyway, he's a big old boy, kind of got bruised up a little bit coming through the birth canal, but he's all right, and uh, you continue to pray for them. I probably got about three hours sleep last night. In fact, Ledge came in with a big old pizza about uh, nine o'clock last night. I ate that, and uh, we were up late. It's it's just been a a rough couple of days, but uh, it's good, good to be here. So I've had three hours sleep. Hopefully you've had a little bit more than I've had. One of the things that I I seldom ever have done, in fact, I don't think I've ever done it, I never put a fish on the back of my vehicle. And I never have any kind of Christian bumper sticker on the back of my vehicle. Now, you want to guess why? (laughs) Road rage. (laughs) Well, uh, I I don't know if I've had road rage, but I've gotten pretty irritated. And one of the things that uh, sometimes I'm, you know, very sensitive of is being a bad witness for Christ. I, on my way home today, I pulled into a McDonald's there in Collins, uh, walked up to the counter. I was behind this little, uh, little elderly couple standing in front of me, and they were getting their breakfast, and I was waiting behind them. And this man was unbelievably rude. I'm, what was sad was he had his church clothes on, He had his Bible bag. He was holding his Bible bag, and he was just absolutely one of the most rudest people I've seen in some time. And I wanted to say to him, sir, please, whatever you do, please go put your Bible back in the car, uh, you know, and get you some old clothes on because you don't need to be identified with Christ. Now, we're going to do something different today. We're going to be talking about the church, and and I've called this church 101. Okay, church 101. You remember when you were in college, those 101 courses? What kind of courses were they? They were beginners, basic, German 101. You know, then you got up 2-0 and 3-0, you got on up. But you know, that was your basic. Vince Lombardi, when he was, uh, first time he began to coach the Green Bay Packers and the Lombardi Trophy is the Super Bowl winner's uh, prize, Vince Lombardi called all of the Packers in together. They got into a huddle around him. He knelt down there in that huddle and he said, men, he said, this is a football. And he said, we're going to start right at the basics. So today I want to talk to you about the church. Now I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 beginning with verse 13. We're going to read that first, and then we're going to talk about the church today. And this is very, very practical. So Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning at verse 13. 
And when you get there, I tell you what, just go ahead, let's stand in honor of God's word. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christos, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? Let's say it together. I will build my church. church. Now, what's the two letters in the middle of C-H-U-R-C-H? What is it? You are. <laughs> yeah, you are. You are what? You're the church. So he says here, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, Hades, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now let's pray real quickly again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We pray, dear Lord, that you'll use this time to speak to our hearts and that we might learn today what it means to be a part of the church. And we pray this, and Lord, I ask you to cleanse me. Let me be a vessel that you can use. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now that word church, you've heard me say it a lot of times, is that Greek word ekklesia, ekkaleo, called out once. Listen to this quote here by John Bassanio. He made this statement, when you and I become a believer, he said, when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit baptizes you and I into oneness, not only with Jesus, but with all the believers everywhere. That means all over the world. Doug and Sandy were in Costa Rica last week doing evangelism, taking the gospel. Nearly 1,500 people came to Christ. Every one of those people became your brother and sister in Christ. They are the ecclesia. We're all part of that universal church. Now listen to what he goes on to say. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into oneness, not only with Jesus, but also with all believers everywhere. It is the church that exists beyond buildings, denominational lines, international borders. It is the body of who? Who is it? It is the body of Christ, the family of God on the earth. Now he goes on to say something about the local church, because see, we have a universal worldwide, invisible church. And we're all part of that body, and that's the body of Christ. But then we have the local church. Now listen to how he defines it. He defines the local church as a visible, local, assembled body of baptized believers worshiping together, ministering to one another, honoring the Lord, and winning the lost. Did you hear that? So in other words, you and I are not only part of a universal, worldwide church, we're also part of a local body of believers. Do you understand? Amen? 
Amen. Okay, now what Paul would do, when Paul began to take the gospel all over Asia, what Paul would do is Paul was constantly organizing new believers into an ecclesia, a church. He would identify certain individuals who had leadership skills. He would train those officers, pastors and deacons. We'll talk about that in a moment. And, and he would organize these early churches. Now, let me say something here. What is important? There's nothing wrong with organizational structure. Sometimes people just think we ought to fly by the seat of our britches. But churches get dangerous when they start flying by the seat of their britches. Is that right? So we're part of a local church. Now what happens is a lot of times local churches will actually join together. They'll unite together because they have a certain purpose or a common cause and sometimes that's a denomination. We call that a denomination. We are a part of a denomination, Southern Baptist. Now in 1 Corinthians 14.40, in 1 Corinthians 14.40, in fact turn there, from, from Matthew. You better keep your finger there on Matthew though. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, and you're going to have to stay with me. No, I, I know this is a little different, but this is important. Watch what Paul says to the church at Corinth, the ecclesia, the called out ones, this church that had been organized. But listen, there were a lot of problems in this church. And you know a lot of those problems could have been solved with 1 Corinthians 14.40. Because watch what it says here. Paul says, but everything should be done what? In a fitting and orderly way. You see it? Now, he uses the word there, fitting, which means decently, honestly, with discretion, and orderly, meaning that it's, it's, it's arranged, it's taken care of properly. Years ago, Gary Blakeney, and Gary Blakeney is an unbelievable businessman. He's a brilliant man when it comes to administration. He and I went to visit a parachurch organization in the city that wanted us to become involved in some of their work. As we walked through this parachurch organization, now let me say this, para is the word alongside of. So when we say parachurch, give you an example, Gideon's. The Gideons are a parachurch organization, which means they come alongside the church basically to equip us to give the Word of God to as many people all over the world as we can. That's parachurch. They come alongside the church. Listen, they don't replace the church. They come alongside the church to help the church carry out the Great Commission. Does that make sense? Gary and I went to a parachurch organization. As we moved around looking at it, examining it, Gary, when we left, he was very quiet. Finally, I said, Gary, what's wrong? He said, the thing that bothered me was financial accountability. I did not see and did not hear accountability. Let me give you an example. When you give your money in this church, when you put your money in the plate, when your money goes into that plate, it, it, you can know, now listen closely, you can know where every cent of every dollar goes. If you don't like where your money's going, you can come to a business meeting and say, I don't like the pastor. I don't want to give my money to help pay his salary. In fact, I want my money to go here. I want it to go and together we grow because I want to build a playground for the preschool department. 
Now, you can get mad and do that, and I don't recommend you do that. I pray that you just give your tithes and offerings and you give it what we call free will. What I'm saying is unlike TV ministries and unlike some ministries that you can get involved in where you don't have no idea where your money's going, in the local church, the ecclesia, this church, you can know where every penny of every dollar goes. If you don't like where it's going, you can vote against it when it comes budget time. Now, beyond that, we're part of an evangelical community. In other words, let me give you an example. Down on the corner down here is Southside what? Southside Assembly of God. They are, they are a sister church to us in that they are part of a larger evangelical community. In other words, if you went down and you talked to Brian Wilson, or you put Brian Wilson and I in the same room together, you would find that Brian Wilson and I, though we come from different denominations, we agree on the core beliefs or the core doctrinal issues. In other words, we would find great unity. In other words, if you put Brian Wilson and I down together, you would find that we both believe in a literal, literal Word of God. We believe in the Bible, the Word of God. We also believe that there is salvation in no other name except that of Jesus Christ. We believe in regeneration, rebirth. We believe in the transformation as people uh, are transformed into the image of Christ. And we also believe in the local body of believers. So it doesn't matter that we're Southern Baptists, their assembly of God. We're both part of an evangelical community that holds a lot of core distinctives. Uh, uh, we're a lot alike. Now, what happens a lot of times is people think denominations are wrong. All of a sudden, we're living in a day where people all of a sudden are declaring war on denominations. All denominations are are churches who come together in agreement in order to be more able more empowered to do whatever they feel they need to be doing, which is the Great Commission. Let me give you an example. The Assembly of God. I am proud to say that the Assembly of God are like-minded, evangelical, just like us in many ways. They have come together and they provide one of the best drug rehab programs, I believe, in the world today, in the country today. And that's called what, Alan? Teen Challenge. Teen Challenge is one of the most effective drug rehab programs that there is. Now, Southside Assembly by itself could not do that, but join with other Assembly of God churches as a denomination. They're able to provide a much-needed service. Now, what denomination is this? We're Southern Baptists. Now, let me tell you, Southern Baptists are the largest evangelical denomination in the world. We are a group of over 40,000 churches that are united together in a common cause. We, we, uh, we have the largest missionary sending agency in the world, the International Mission Board. We have the North American Mission Board. We have, the, we, we have hospitals. We have the largest seminaries possibly in the world. In other words, Southern Baptists are a denomination that are joined together in order to do what we do. Now, 
cooperative program giving, when you give your offering, a portion of that offering will go to the cooperative program. In other words, it's put in a, it's put in a common offering where all these churches are putting in it together in order to take care of over 5,000 missionaries that are all over the world and other needs. Does that make sense? Now, let me say, if, you, if, if something happens and something does not make sense to you, I want you to interrupt me because this is very nervous for me. I would have whole lots had a, rather had a worship service and preaching. But I think in this church, and it needs to be on our website, that it's important that we do this. So if you have a question, though, you can say that. Only a question. Don't get caught up. Let me read something to you. Denominations are not evil. They pose no threat to the kingdom of God. They're not divisive. Paul would organize the early New Testament church in order to ensure that the needs of the Jerusalem church were being met. That's what Paul did in some ways. Denominations are simply like-minded churches joining together to carry out the Great Commission and the work of the local uh, and the work of the Lord. Now, let me give you an example. If, if, I, if all of a sudden I just went off on a tangent and I started preaching that there was another way to God outside of Jesus Christ. And let's say that you loved me so much and you were duped. I mean, you were just hoodwinked. Once that got out, our Metro Baptist Association, which is churches in Madison and Hines County, Southern Baptist churches in this denomination that are joined together, they would come knocking on my office door to find out what was wrong with me, to see if I'd had a stroke, if I was losing my mind, if Alzheimer's had set in, they would be wanting to know why I was behaving that way. If I did not come under their discipline, their direction, and you did not, then it would go to the state convention, the Mississippi Baptist Convention. They would come with representatives and they'd say, man, Brother Jeff, what is this we hear? I'm an earned doctorate. You've been in ministry 35 years, been a U.S. Army chaplain, been a former Southern Baptist missionary. Man, what's happened to you? And, and again, I say, well, I just believe differently now. Now listen, the state convention would discipline me and would discipline us. In other words, the association would put us out of the denominational association. The state convention would discipline us and put us out of the convention. Ultimately, Southern Baptists would, they would uh, uh, excommunicate us. They would put us out. We would be outside the denomination. Now listen, what's important is you and I understand denominations are not necessarily bad. They keep a level of accountability in the local church. Does that make sense? They ensure that you and I doctrinally stay faithful to the scripture. Okay, now everybody... Next, I want you to repeat these words after me. Final authority. Let's say that. Final authority. Let me ask you something. What's your final authority? Word of God. Andy, you knew, Andrew, you knew where we were going with that. Word of God. Everybody take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. So what we've seen so far is there's a universal church Invisible universal church. Doesn't matter Costa Rica, Zimbabwe, here we're all part of a, of a body of believers, the body of Christ. Now we're also organized in local churches. 
such as this church right here. But we're also tied in with a denomination, which is also able to keep us uh, accountable while equipping us to do greater work than we could do by ourselves. Okay, now let me get there. I'm not there either. Second, Second Timothy... In fact, let me ask somebody else today. Somebody else read that. Somebody stand up and read that. Okay, Reggie. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay. The church, you're part of a body of believers, the ecclesia. All of us are joined together, but our final authority, where we go when we need to know something, whether it's a moral, an ethical issue, political issue, whatever it may be, when we're trying to figure out something, we go to the Bible, the Word of God, to get what we would say that final word. Now look this way. I am not your final authority. The Pope is not your final authority. The Vatican is not your final authority. The president is not your final authority. Washington is not your final authority. John MacArthur is not your final authority. John Calvin is not your final authority. Jacob Arminius is not your final authority. Methodist, Baptist, Southern Baptist, Assembly of God, a denomination is not your final authority. What is your final authority? The Word of God. When you come into this sanctuary, most of the time what you experience, you experience a strong, vibrant worship, and then I come up here and what do I tell you to do? Take your Bibles and what? And open them up. Because you see, this is in essence what you're checking me to see if what I'm saying or what I'm preaching is true or not. You see, I I do exegetical, expository preaching. In other words, we've been going through what book of the Bible? Been going through the book of Genesis. Now, we've been going through it, and you may think we're not going to get through with it before the rapture. I mean, we've been going through it a long time, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, making our way. Now, I've gone through, I spent over a year in the Gospel of Luke. We went through the book of Ephesians. We're going through Philippians on Wednesday night. We're going through Genesis. In other words, look this way. You're not hearing topical preaching, political views, or my latest philosophical opinion about life. I am taking you verse by verse through your what? final authority so that you're able to do what so that you're able to discern if something is really truth or not does that make sense now i wrote this down i want you to listen to this you and i can never be governed by our feelings yeah how many times people say well i don't feel saved you and i can never be we can never be governed by our feelings or a word received in our spirit that we place a greater authority on than what? The Word of God. You see, this is why the Gideons, Doug, you're in Gideons, right? But you have, for many, many years, Doug was in the Gideons, and there may be somebody else in this room. The Gideons were, listen, 
their goal was to put the final authority, God's word, in as many languages and as many hands as they possibly could all over the world. So, again, listen closely. You and I never are, are, I cannot, you and I can never be governed by our feelings, a word received in our spirit that we place a greater authority than the word of God. Everything you hear, you read, you think is weighed against the word of God. Reggie, read it again. Okay, that word adequate in the Greek is the word complete. In other words, as you and I get into the word of God, a moment ago, Russell came down here and he said, are you getting my text? I said, yes, I am. I knew immediately what he was saying. Russell and Doug both send texts every morning to me. Russell comes a little bit earlier because he's working that strange shift. But uh, I mean, I, look, when I get up in the morning, I go in there, I pick up my phone and I see the word of God from two brothers in Christ who are encouraging me to look at the final authority for my life. Does that make sense? So what Reggie said is this. What the Word of God says is, this is designed so that you and I can be complete, mature, which means that we, listen, look this way. This is how, this is part of God's process of conforming you and I into the image of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Now, you remember those, you remember those tests that you used to take, standardized tests? And you had to bring a number two pencil. I don't know, has it changed? Are y'all using computers now or your cell phone to take these tests? Now, a lot of teachers use those tests and, and, and what you had was a number two pencil. And you would circle the answer, right? One, two, three, A, B, C, D, E. And boy, didn't you hate it when it was all of the above, none of the above? Oh, man. Then you would see, if you've ever seen a teacher who used that kind of testing back years ago, they had a master. And they would lay that master on the piece of paper and immediately they could pick every single wrong answer you and I had. Right? And I used to think, if I could just get that master copy. <laughs> if I just had the cheat sheet, then I could beat her at her own game. Look this way. In fact, hold your Bible. You've got not only the final authority to every decision, every conflict that you face, every problem you face, you've got the answer. You've got the cheat sheet. Southern Baptists are called people of the book because we believe so strongly in this. Now, again, if your Bible sits in the dash of your car all week, I go out there and look in your cars trying to see. I took a picture one time. In Walmart. I was in the Walmart parking lot. Sheila said, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking a picture. She said, of what? Come on. I said, I'm taking a picture of this Bible all wrinkled up in the back dash of this car. If your Bible sits on the TV, thrown on the table, 
in a bag, in the car, in the dash, thrown off to the side, and it sits there all week, shame on you. There have been POWs who, when they were in POW camps in German, under the German Nazi regime, they, the Germans would take the Bible and rip the pages out of it to wipe themselves after they had gone to the bathroom. They threw it down into that, just in a hole. Do you know what the POWs would do? They would crawl down into that hole, find those fragments of the Bible, clean them, wipe them off, wipe them, wash them off as best they could, and hand them around between the, between the prisoners because they loved this that much. I remember one time coming through Zimbabwe, I, was, I would run in the morning, and I was running, and all of a sudden I looked, and there was a group of African girls, and they were all excited. They were beside themselves. And I thought, what in the world are they so excited about? I was still learning the language. I didn't quite understand. And all of a sudden I heard that word baiberi. And I looked, shokamwamwadi. And they were holding those new Gideon Bibles they had received in the school. And they were so excited. It's the word of God. Now, fourth is doctrine. Now, let me tell you. Baptists and Methodists, we, we kind of we talk about how to be baptized, right? Some people there are immersed, others are sprinkled. Big thing is, is your heart changed? Are you saved? Now, what is doctrine? What does it mean to be doctrinally sound? And what is doctrine? If you look at the evangelical community, if you looked at us as a denomination, Methodist Southside Assembly, you would find that we all follow a basic systematic theology. In other words, it's like a skeleton. Let me give you an example. Turn to Hebrews chapter, um, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to read that one. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Now, now, before he reads, listen closely. This is a doctrinal statement. This is a truth. Now listen to him. Read it real loud. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, did you hear that? Read it again. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, that's a, that's a central doctrine to salvation. That's part of our systematic theology. In other words, what your final authority tells you, everybody look this way, there is no forgiveness of sin without what? Without the shedding of blood. Okay, so you can't forgive sin unless you do what? Shed blood. Now, the, when we talk about doctrine, what we believe, central truths. We're not talking about how one is baptized. We're not talking about mode of baptism. That's not, a, that's not a doctrinal, central, pivotal truth to our systematic theology. Hebrews 9.22 is. And one thing that you'll find, now li listen closely, because you're going to have Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, you're going to have all kinds of different splinter groups, all kinds of cultic groups. They're going to come to your home and they're going to sit down and they're going to say, we believe just like you do. 
But you're going to find that as you study and learn your what? Your final authority, you're going to begin to discern where they're right and where they are tragically wrong. Okay, without the shedding of blood, there's no what? Forgiveness of sin. Have you ever had somebody sit down with you and want to prove a point to you? And, and they'll take a scripture, they'll take one scripture, they'll pull it out of context, and they'll put that in front of you. And you're sitting there scratching your head going, man, what do I say, what do I do? It is in the Bible. Do you know that the devil did that? You remember when, the, when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? Do you know what the devil said? He said, listen, if you be the son of God, turn these rocks into, these stones into bread. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of what? Your final authority, the word of God. The devil goes on. He, you know what the devil thought? He said, well, I'll beat Jesus at, the, at his game here. He quotes scripture to me. I'll quote it back to him. So this time the devil takes Jesus up sets him up on a pinnacle of, a, of the temple and says, listen, if you be the son of God, cast yourself down from here for it is written, legions of angels are guarding over you lest you dash your foot against the stone. In other words, the angels will save you. Scripture says that. The psalmist said that. You and I need to be, be very clear. A doctrinal truth is not a single verse or a proof text. Without the shedding of there's no forgiveness of sin. Who killed first? Who killed first in creation? No. God. You remember God killed first. What did God kill? Killed an animal. Why did he kill the animal? To cover what? Cover Adam and Eve, cover the results of their sin, Right? The word atone is to cover. It's also the picture of atonement, at one meant, reconciliation. What the Bible says is this, God, you and I are alienated from God. And the only way that we can come before God and even be saved is that we have to shed blood in order to experience forgiveness so that we can be reconciled. So who, who was the first one to kill? God. Why did he kill? To cover, to atone for man's sin, to reconcile man to himself. And the only way to do that, he had to shed what? Blood, right? At the Passover, when Moses told them that the death angel was going to come through the camp, Moses told them to go and get what out of, their field, out of the flock? Get a lamb, take that lamb, slit its throat, take that blood, take that hyssop, dip it, and do what over the doorpost? Cover the doorpost. Why? So that when the death angel saw what? Saw blood, the death angel would do what? He'd pass over. Levitical system, the Levitical sacrificial system. How many of you start the one-year Bible? Man, you're just rolling and going, Genesis, oh man, I'm, I'm into this. Exodus, yeah, you know, you got your coffee and you're moving right along. And then all of a sudden you hit Leviticus and you go, what in the world? You see, the Levitical sacrificial system, that blood sacrificial system that was taught to the Jew, 
The shedding of blood was to remind them you, God cannot forgive sin unless blood is shed. Billy Graham said this. He was at a major university. Billy Graham was at a major university. He said he, he was asked to speak. He was an anthropology major. He was asked to speak in the Department of Anthropology. He knew that they were going to nail him to the wall and start attacking him and he would be defending the gospel. He turned it around, simply looked at them and said, tell me one civilization, tell me one people that did not practice blood sacrifice. He said, even among pagans who have never heard the gospel, there's this something in their head. They believe. Why do you think they sacrifice children, sacrifice, do this? Because it's as if they are programmed to understand one thing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Why? Why does God do it in the garden? Why did God instruct it at the Passover? Why did God devote an entire book of the Bible, Leviticus, to the Levitical sacrificial system? What was God preparing the Hebrew, the Jew for, and what was he preparing us for? For Jesus. You remember what John the Baptist said when he saw him? What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God that does what? Washes, takes away, atones for, reconciles, cleans man's sin. So see, that's a, that's a central doctrine. And so when, when I get together with Assembly of God, Pentecostal, um, Church of God, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, uh, when I get together with these evangelical denominations, one thing we all agree on, we know that that's a central doctrine that cannot be compromised. Does that make sense? And there's a bunch of them in your final authority. Now we've got to move quickly and we'll close in a moment. I want you to go back to, to Matthew 16. Go back to Matthew 16. Because the question becomes then, we're, we see the universal in, invisible church. Costa Rica, Zimbabwe, underground church in China. Hey, listen, look this way. In the Islamic world, don't you be worried, folks. There is an underlying revival of the church in the Islamic world. China's underground church is exploding in growth. Don't ever think that the church is being beat down and snuffed out. In fact, martyrdom, bloodshed, just makes the church more powerful, more energetic. All it does is purify it, purges it. So here you have the universal church. You and I, all of us are a part of it. Doesn't matter where you go in any part of the world. If you're in a strange, you, hey, and listen, I could go around chi-chi, chi-chi. That's what I would do when I was learning the language in Zimbabwe. Chi-chi, what is this? What is this? Chokomomwari, baiberi. They would sit there and instruct me, but one word, I mean, listen, there were certain words I could pick up. I could pick up Jesus. You've been to a lot of countries. You can always pick up Jesus. You can always pick up words like hallelujah. So in, 
but so here we have the universal church. Here we have the local body of believers. Here the local body of believers is networked in with denominations. Here denominations are part of a larger evangelical community. And here all of these evangelical denominations and individual churches are in agreement on some of the basic tenets of our faith, doctrines, systematic theology. It's like a skeleton. But in Matthew chapter 16 begin at verse 13 again. How do you become a member of the church? Now I want everybody to look this way. Look this way for a moment. If you have never repented of your sin and invited Jesus Christ to come into your heart, then my friend, I want you to know something. You stand right now, one heartbeat, one breath, away from eternity without God, without Jesus Christ, eternally and forever separated from God. Listen, look this way. Don't worry about darkness and fire. Worry about just separating, being separated from God. When people look at me and they say, you know, my marriage is hell on earth. My job is hell on earth. My home is hell on earth. You know what they're telling to me? You know what they're saying to me? God is not a part of my marriage, not a part of my home, not a part of my job. And then I want to wonder, well, is God a part of you? Watch what happens here. Peter, Jesus asked him a question. He said, but Peter, verse 15, what about you? He asked the disciples as Peter was a spokesman. What about you? Who do you say I am? Look at verse 16. Because the first thing in order to be saved is you and I have to recognize Jesus Christ. We have to know who he is. Jesus said, listen, tell me what the marketplace is all about. What are they saying out in the marketplace? They said, man, hey, hey, Lord, I'm, I'm sure Matthew, Thomas, John, I'm uh, Judas, I'm sure they all begin to pipe in and, and, and say, you know, some say, you, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist returned from the, bed, from the dead. All of those, listen, were compliments. But do you know what Jesus then said? He said, but who do you say that I am? He's asking the disciples the central question. Who is Jesus Christ? Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He said he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's what? He's Lord. So here Peter recognizes because Peter says you're the Christ you're the son of the living God in Romans 10 13 it says this Romans 10 13 for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what saved, saved. past tense you can't call on somebody that you don't recognize so the first thing that happens in order for you to be a Christian is that you recognize who Jesus is. Secondly, there's repentance. That word there's metanoia. It means, uh, it means you're going this way. I mean, you're just going this way when all of a sudden you're coming, you're just going along, and all of a sudden, listen, you're coming to the edge. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when that moment will be. And let me say this. Once you take this step, this faithful step right here, one second after death, it's too late to make a decision. It's kind of like jump school. Stand up, hook up, shove them through the door. They check your parachute over and over again. They make sure that everything's ready. 
Why? Because once you step out that door of that plane, there is no checking your parachute anymore. This is death. And you and I, listen, we're just going along here, recklessly living our lives when all of a sudden we recognize Christ is standing between us and hell, between us and eternity. And in that moment, the Bible says, as we recognize who Christ is, we also recognize who we are. And we repent. The word repent just simply means a 180. I'm just going, heading straight to hell when all of a sudden I'm going the opposite direction. I have a metanoia in the Greek, a change of mind, change of heart, and I realize that I can't, listen to this, I can't keep going the way I'm going. Some of you in this room are saying constantly that you are a child of God, that you're a Christian, that you are a follower of Christ, and there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. We cannot see that you've repented of anything. So there is recognition, there's repentance, and there's receiving. John, uh, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If, if you hear somebody knocking at the door, what do you normally do? What do you do? What? Hey, you're right. And you definitely do it in our neighborhoods. You peek out the door. We got cameras that tell us who's at the door. We just don't open the door. We don't know what's going to happen when we open the door. We want to know who's on the other side of the door. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice, akuo in the Greek, if he hears my voice and will then open the door. I recognize Christ. And when I recognize Christ, I repent of my sin and I receive him into my what? Into my heart. And then finally, guess what happens? He comes, listen, to reside where? In me. Let me tell you what happens here. At the moment, here's what happened to me. I I was like some of you in this room. I was playing a game with God. I thought I was saved. God bless you. I thought I was saved. I hoped I was saved. I believed I was saved, but I wasn't sure that I was saved. I really wasn't positive. And to be honest with you, when I did an inventory on my life, I saw things in my life that a believer shouldn't have in their life. And you know what happened to me? I got to thinking, you know what? I'm not sure. And there came a day that I knelt down in an office and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart to forgive me. I received him into my heart. Now listen, when that happened... In that moment, he came to live in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ lives in you if you're a Christian. And guess what? At the same time, it was a simultaneous baptism. Baptismo, that word for immerse. You are, listen, it's not talking about water here. It's saying that Christ is immersed in you. He has now come to take residence, to live in you. You've opened up your heart and life and said, now come be the Lord of this. At the same time, listen to this, you were immersed 
baptized into the body of Christ. You became a part of Christ. The last one is this. He, he begins to reprogram you. Right? You know, you used to be able to sin. You remember? You just watch, read, listen, do whatever, hang around with, do whatever you wanted to do. You know, you could just do what you wanted to. Oh, you come over here and mess all around the edge here. You just live life the way you wanted to. And then all of a sudden you encounter Jesus Christ. Christ came to live in you. He not only came to take up residence in you, you're now residing in Him. You are immersed in Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ, a universal church. And now guess what? You ever try to sin? You can't. Now, whoa, wait a minute, Brother Jeff. You're saying I can't sin? No, I didn't say that. I say you just don't enjoy it no more, do you? Man, you tried to sin. Yeah, listen, you, you, you know, uh, Russell, can I pick on you for a moment? Russell came up here and he said, uh, he said, you get my scripture? I said, yes, I am. He said, and then he, we small talk, and then he said, pray for me about my temper. You know what I said? Pray for me about my temper. You see, used to, you could just get mad, throw a fit, lose your temper, and you'd just say, well, get over it. You might look at your wife, look at your husband, and say, look, you just get over it. Kids, you can get over it. It's the way it is. I'm just a straight shooter. I tell people what they think, and it doesn't matter. You just get over it. Until all of a sudden, Jesus comes to live in your heart, and all of a sudden, He begins to do what? He begins to change you. He starts reprogramming you. You get mad and lose your temper, and you come back and say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Well, we didn't get very far today. How long have we been going? I know, Reggie, you'll tell me the truth. Reggie, what time is it? What time is it, Reggie? Reggie, you're just going to make me have to look at my phone. Let me see. Okay, it's time, it's time to stop. We're going to stop. We didn't see, and Reggie knew y'all were all staring, y'all were literally staring at the back. He could feel y'all looking at him. Don't you tell him to keep going. End, end this. I was going to talk to you about how a church operates. We're going to talk about the pastor, talk about deacons, talk about committees, talk about the practical. We'll do that next week. We'll do that next week. But let me ask you something. I want you to go ahead and stand. I want to ask you something. Have you ever had a life-changing, born-again experience with Jesus Christ? Don't, don't answer. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a, he was a religious leader. He knew the Old Testament looked this way, probably from memory. He was a master rabbi. He went to Jesus one night, sat at a fire, and he, and he began to talk to Jesus. Small talk. He said, Lord, he said, Jesus, we know that your teacher come from Israel, for no one can do the things that you do. 
Jesus, you know what he does? As he so well does, he just cuts all the small talk. He said, look, just cut it out, Nicodemus. Let's get to the point. Nicodemus, you must be born again. In fact, when I, when I was in Zimbabwe, I learned those words. You must be born again. And I, that was one thing I learned in Shona because I wanted to say to the African there in Zimbabwe, you must be born again. You've heard me tell the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon when they were building the Metro Tabernacle there in London. He walked in there because they didn't have sound systems. Walked in there, stood behind that pulpit. This big barrel-chested man of God stood behind that pulpit in the Metro Tabernacle there in London. He thought nobody was in there. It was dead quiet, dark. Nobody was in there. But he wanted to check the acoustics. And he said, you must be born again. And it echoed through that tabernacle. Quiet, dark, dead building. He wanted to test it again. He got it a little louder. He said, you must be born again. And that voice just reverberated one last time. You must be born again. And about that time, there was a man working on the flooring up in a part of that building. He couldn't see him. And he raised up and he was shaking all over. And he raised his hand and he began to weep and to cry. And he said, Mr. Spurgeon, he said, I want to be born again. I'm going to tell you folks, listen, you can go under that water a half dozen times. It doesn't make a dime's worth of difference when you stand before God. You can own a hundred Bibles and you can have them tucked away in your car, in your home, put it everywhere. You can, listen, you can, have your, you can have your name on the roll of this church, Southside Assembly, Presbyterian Methodist. You can add them all up. You can try them all out. But if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, if you've not done what nearly 1,500 men and women, boys and girls did in Costa Rica and giving their heart and life to Christ this past week as you saw them do. If you have not done that, then you're standing here right now. You may be a church member, but you're lost. And you need to settle that. We're going to pray. And I'm going to ask Reggie to stand here. And I'm going to be here. And if you've never given your heart and life to Christ, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Heads bowed and with eyes closed. You say, Brother Jeff, I don't know. I'm not certain. If I died, I don't know if I'd go to heaven or not. When I look at my life, there are things in my life that I'm not proud of. I have no victory over sin. I don't feel the presence and the power of Christ in my heart and life. My name is on the church rolls, but it's not on the Lamb's book of life. Brother Jeff, I don't know if I'd go to heaven or not. In 1 John chapter 5, it says this, These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that? If you're here today and you say, Brother Jeff, I don't know, I'm not sure, but I want to know now. 
then I want you to pray this prayer with me. Listen, everybody look this way. I'm not trying to talk you into nothing. If I can, come, if I can talk you into something, somebody else will come along and talk you out of it. But if you're here today and you know deep down in the depth of your soul that you're not saved, that you're not a Christian, that you've never given your heart and life to Christ, I can tell you why 1,500 people are saved in Costa Rica and probably none will be saved in this building is because we are not desperate enough as those people there. Many of those people walk miles just to get there. Many of them go through great difficulty like those POWs did even to get a piece of the Word of God. Many of those live under great threat to their life because they identify with Christ. There is a pastor in prison in Iran right now. But I can tell you why in America we don't see salvations like we see them in other parts of the world. Because we are not desperate enough yet. God make this country desperate. Do whatever you have to do. But if you're here and you don't know for certain, settle it right now with me. Pray this prayer. Our Heavenly Father, dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. But I know that you love me. And you died for me. And you paid the full penalty of my sin on Calvary's cross. Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin and right now I ask you to come into my heart to forgive me through your shed blood. And right now to be my Lord and my Savior. From this day forward, August the 2nd, 2015, for the rest of my life, I will know on that day that I settled it. Lord, I pray if there's one here that prayed that prayer and they meant it, I pray that nothing would keep them from coming and making it public. And Lord, will give you all the glory and honor in the name of Jesus. Amen.